1: New customers can use the code cleanforall for all 20 for 20% off their first order. BeautyCounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 184
2: of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi,
3: everybody. How are you today, Jen? Well, I'm sitting here drinking hot water in a mug. So you know how I am. It's warm again, though. It's not warm here. Really? Well, okay. It's warmer, but it's very cloudy. And it is warmer than it had been. But my feet were cold. I'm wearing short sleeves and crop jeans. And so I guess I was walking around the house. Our house has a very cold floor. I think I said that last time. So my feet got cold. So I was getting something to drink to take into the podcast studio. And I said, I think I want hot water. I'm
2: sorry that you're struggling.
3: (laughs) That's all right. Yeah. (laughs) Going to the beach next week, and I think I'm going to take my Uggs. Oh, my goodness. I don't even know if Uggs are still in style, but I don't care because they're so cozy.
2: Yeah, see, I don't like shoes
3: that are enclosed like that. I don't like shoes that you have to wear socks with.
2: Uh, Me neither.
3: Yeah, so I'm great with, with barefoot season. I'm great with flip-flops and sandals. I can wear Uggs because you don't have to wear socks. And I can also wear mini Tonka, like, what are they, moccasins, because you don't have to wear socks. But I don't do well with socks. I
2: don't like socks. We have something in common.
3: Yay! My feet like to be free. So, anyway.
2: I haven't actually been outside yet today, so I don't know if
3: it's... We went and ran some errands. It just is the gross-feeling, cloudy fall day. It's not one of those beautiful, crisp fall days. It's just a yucky kind of wet. It's not cold. Okay. It's probably 78 degrees. So people are probably going to be laughing at me, but it just, you know, it's dreary. 78 and sunny is very different than 78 and wet cloudy. This is true. Yeah. It's very humid. It's very, very humid and cloudy. It's like a sticky kind of cloudy.
2: I actually got happy that it was humid and sticky for a very random reason. Cause normally I don't like that. Remember how I had the flood in my apartment? Oh yeah the apartment people are just not pulling it together. They're just not like, they're not fixing it. They're not doing mold testing or whatever. So I was like, I'm just going to do my own mold testing. So I had a service come and I scheduled it. And then for like the two days before it was raining. So I turned off because I want it to come back positive.
3: (laughs) Oh, so they have to fix it.
2: Yeah. So I was like, what can I do to like maximize mold? So I like been turning off all my air purifiers and was like, let the moisture come. So they came. So we'll see. They did air tests, which are apparently the most valid form of testing.
3: I would like you to have no mold and then not have to do any mold remediation. Right. That would be ideal.
2: But I mean, either way, I'll get it dealt with. So yeah, I would just say friends, if you at all are suspicious about mold, please check for it. I lived in a moldy apartment for two years and I think it like, if you're susceptible to it. I don't know if, if it has an effect on your body, it can really have an effect on your body. So I think so. Yepers. Well, on that dreary note, shall we <laughs> do you want to jump into everything for today?
3: Yep. Let's get started.
2: All right. So to start things off, we have a slight follow-up something that we said we would get back to last time, which I feel like every time we do that, we, do, we don't always get back to it, but we're getting back to it. So yay. Emily had asked us about her shift work, weight loss, intermittent fastings, like crazy sleep schedule where she would sleep from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., do a paper route from 2 to 4 a.m., and then sleep from 4 to 7 a.m., which was a very crazy sleep schedule. We talked about the
3: like fascinating, was it mid-Victorian people? I think in general, just it being like the, I've just read articles that indicated that's how they lived, like medieval times or I don't know. Like that was the natural way to be.
2: Yeah. So they would like go to sleep and then like wake up and then go to sleep. So I asked the resident sleep expert, Dr. Kirk Parsley, who I've had on the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I asked him about it and he obviously knew everything about it. He said it was called dual sleep and it occurred roughly 22 longitudinal above or below the equator. And it was because nights were 10 to 12 hours at night and the people would sleep in two halves of the night. And then they would like wake up in the middle to do activities and hang out while the kids were still asleep. So that's different than like today where we're only sleeping, you know, we're lucky if we're sleeping eight hours. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think we were like contemplating that and we're like, oh, so maybe this is like a good thing. It's not an ideal situation. That situation would be if you were sleeping, like if it was like a 12 hour night and you were waking up in the middle. So
3: I think our original answer still stands about that schedule. Because they slept from dark to dark, right? That was the difference. Those people were sleeping from dark to dark, and that was too much sleep. Yeah, probably. So they would wake up in the middle and then have their second half of the...
2: That makes sense.
3: But you know what? My body is still tuned to that. I swear I could live that way. Because as soon as it starts to get dark, I want to go to bed. I don't care if that's 9.30 at night or 5.30 at night. If it's dark, I want to get in the bed. I probably should start just doing that. Go to bed, wake up in the middle of the night, get up, (laughs) do some stuff, go back to bed. I bet, I think that might be my natural, (laughs) let us know how that goes. Might be my natural way of being. I might
2: still be awake in that time when you wake up because you would go to bed. So like, when does it get dark? You would go to bed at
3: like, Uh, well, five o'clock if it's the winter time. Okay. So you would sleep from like five to like 11. Oh, and then you could wake up and then we could hang out. (laughs) And then have my second night's sleep.
2: And then we could both go back to bed at the same (laughs) time.
3: I swear I would probably feel great doing that. We could do the podcast then. In the middle of the (laughs) night. (laughs) Yeah. I'd have to have an earlier window. I'd have to shift it. (laughs) So, yeah. Coming to you from Jen's biphasic sleep.
2: (laughs) And my normal sleep. And my normal, like... Oh, that's so funny, but yeah, the sleep is huge. And I will do a quick plug for Dr. Persley's Sleep Remedy. They have an unflavored version of it that is fast, friendly, and it basically has all of the substrates that your brain naturally needs to fall asleep. So it's not like a pharmaceutical; it doesn't knock you out or you know affect your sleep quality. It just makes your brain naturally fall asleep. So I think you can get it for ten percent off at SleepRemedy.com/slash/MelanieAvalon. And the version of it that I have is a capsule. Yeah, it's a capsule. They have drinks as well. So you can get it for 10% off at MelanieAvalon.com slash sleep remedy with the coupon MelanieAvalon. And then, yeah, they do have the, the drinks as well. And they're coming out with a kid's formulation soon. So that's pretty exciting. But yeah, sleep. Sleep is super important. I feel like I keep reading everywhere that out of everything, honestly, diet, lifestyle, exercise, sleep... Sleep is like probably the most important.
3: I mean, it's hard to say one's more important than the other. But sleep is so key. Like fasting is so good for us because it's healing. Sleep is where our our, I don't know, it's where our brains are healing, right? Not sleeping. It's like eating all the time as far as like the effects it has. Yeah. It's where like so many key processes happen that keep
2: you like functional and okay and alive. And like everything important really seems to happen while you're sleeping. So
3: And I'm realizing the importance of keeping it so dark. And now we're getting ready to take another step in the bedroom. You know, I mentioned recently how stupid it was that I didn't realize that (laughs) our shades needed to be, you know, our curtains needed to be drawn. That made a huge difference. But now the light from the little satellite TV. Yeah, if there's just one little light, it's huge. Well, I I recently took away the alarm clock light because we had the dimmest one you could get. I would like someone to invent you know, I, I've just invented it, but <laughs> someone else can invent it and then just send me one. A clock that goes dark. Like, I want to ha- be able to look over and see what time it is only if it is after 530 in the morning. Like, I don't want to roll over and see that it's 2 a.m. I want it to automatically be dark. I wonder if that exists. Do you think it does? I look- couldn't find one. I looked. I want it to automatically be dark. I've seen something like that for kids where they like show a time when it's okay to get up. Like you get a green light if it's okay to get up, but I want zero light. I don't want to roll over and see that it's one thirty, and then it's three o'clock and then it's three 30. What if you do one that you like, it's always dark, but you know, touching it makes it light up. I don't want to touch anything. Well, that's my, my phone does that. I can pick my phone up and look at the time, but I want it to just come on at five 30 in the morning. Then I can see it's time and be completely dark after that. But now since I turned the clock off, now I'm noticing that the satellite light is so bright. So we're I think we're going to change our TV provider so it's darker and just go with like like a Hulu kind of streaming or you could just not have your TV in the bedroom. Well, with that my husband likes to watch TV before going to sleep at night and I actually fall asleep with him watching TV then he turns the TV off. So That works really well, but he likes to wind down with that TV and I fall right to sleep with the TV on while he's watching TV and then he turns it off.
2: I mean, I obviously have been saying from day one, like how important it is to be like all blackout, but I really, really, really realized the importance of that recently because when I had the surgery on my face and I still can't wear, so we're not sponsored by Blue Box today, but we talk about Blue Box, blue light blocking glasses a lot and they have a sleep remedy mask. I think that's what it's called. And it's the only mask I've had that completely blocks out like all light. It's incredible. And it doesn't touch your eyes. Like it's the most brilliant engineering.
3: It like cups up over over your eyes. I cannot sleep with something around my head. I like wake up in the middle of the night and rip it off my head. I don't like hats. I don't like headbands. I don't like hair clips. I can't wear my hair in a ponytail. I've got a head thing. It's... (laughs) (laughs) I don't wear sunglasses. I can't wear anything on my face. I wear my blue blockers when watching TV, but I can only handle it for a short period of time.
2: Well, for those who can handle it,
3: (laughs) I'm a special snowflake. (laughs) For those who can't handle it. Yeah. It's what Jen said. It's
2: like, so there's no pressure on your eyes at all. It's like soft and they goes around your eyes and you can completely open your eyes when it's on and it's
3: completely like blackout. Yeah. The ones I had were like that, but I just couldn't have it on my head. Yeah. So I couldn't
2: wear them for quite a while after the surgery and literally like the first day I could wear it again, I slept like through the night for the first time (laughs) like in a long time, at least since the surgery. And I was like, wow, this is huge. Like, I have the really intense, like, hotel blackout curtains, but there is, like, a tiny bit of light that comes in that I can't quite get rid of.
3: Or, like, under the door of our our bedroom. Like, we accidentally left the lights on in the living room. I guess I thought Chad was turning them off. He thought I was. We just had the door closed. And I, I woke up in the middle of the night. I think I thought it was sunrise coming under the door, but it was the lights in the living room. It is huge, my brain, really. Yep, I need to have it dark. So I'm working on it changing my TV provider to make it darker. But getting rid of the alarm clock made a huge difference completely. But then I could see the other lights. So yeah. But sleep really is that important. Yeah, it is. So resources for listeners, sleep remedy. That's
2: at melanieavalon.com slash sleep remedy with the coupon Melanie Avalon. And for blue blocks, if you'd like the blue light blocking glasses or the sleep remedy mask, they're two completely different companies, but they both Use the word sleep and remedy in the title. That is at blueblocks.com. And the coupon IF podcast gets you, I think 10, it might be 15%. It's 10 or 15% off for everything that you buy there. They donate a pair of glasses to somebody in need, which is
3: pretty nifty. So, shall we jump into our questions? Yes, we have a question from Megan. And the subject is iced coffee versus hot coffee. Hi, M and G. Oh, it's a new one. Yeah. M for Melanie, G for Jen. In case people thought, they were like, what's M and G? (laughs) M and G. Kind of like in the alphabet, L, M, N, O, P. Yeah, there you go. Love your work. I'm curious about whether you could offer some insight into black coffee served hot versus iced. I noticed that iced coffee, both cold brew and otherwise, makes me nauseous. I have tried making it myself and have ordered it from multiple places. Don't worry, always black. But I really notice I'm nauseous for it. I can't say that word. Nauseous is really how you say it, but I always read it wrong. Nauseous, nauseous. I have never had a problem with hot coffee. Thanks for your thoughts. Well, Megan, thank you for your question. So my initial thoughts
2: are that warm things, they like stimulate digestion. They're like basically cold can be a shock to your system. And that's really the only thing I can think of. I
3: know it's like not much help. Well, I had a theory and it's not true.
2: Oh, really? What was your theory?
3: I feel nauseated if I have tea on an empty stomach. And I've heard people say it's the tannins in the tea and coffee has tannins as well. So my theory was that perhaps iced coffee had more tannins than than the hot but that is not true cold brew has fewer tannins than hot brew so my theory was nothing yes fewer tannins and really that makes sense because it's probably the tannins probably add to the bitterness and we know that cold brew takes out some of the bitterness so now my my theory i understand why i was wrong so we learned something (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, I would just would stick to the hot coffee. I don't know why.
2: I guess the question would be, do other cold drinks make you nauseous? If any cold drink makes you nauseous, then it's the temperature. like it's the cold. If they don't,
3: then we got nothing. Then there's something <laughs> and then some combination of the cold and the coffee.: I can think of one thing that is possible. You know, I've talked before about how nitro cold brew doesn't work for me because my brain perceives it as sweet. Maybe the cold brew is being perceived by your brain as sweet and, and you're having a you know, a blood sugar crash making you nauseous. I don't know. That's a, that's a stretch. That's a bit of a stretch. I think
2: it might involve the vagus nerve, probably. Megan, check out my interview that I did on the vagus nerve at MelanieAvalon.com slash vagus nerve with Amy Brandon, who's the creator of a company called Zen by Nuvana. They make a vagus nerve toning device. But the vagus nerve, it's also like called the wandering nerve, and it's this cranial nerve that extends to every single system in our body, with the exception of our thyroid and adrenals, I believe. But it's super, super involved in digestion and like it's interpreting things like temperature, food, digestion, and it's attached directly to the brain. So it's the reason that like, it is the reason <laughs> that, you know, how like anxiety or mood or all of this stuff so intensely affects our digestion. A lot of it goes back to that. And it's also involved in things like fainting, which is not different, not the same thing as nausea, as being nauseated. But I would bet it's a vagus nerve thing being activated by temperature. That would just be my, my guess. So something you could try would be doing activities to quote, tone your vagus nerve or try the Zen by NuVana device and see if that affects how you respond to the coffee. If you're that, if you are really invested fun times. All right. Right. So the next question comes from Paula. The subject is IF and Paula says, I'm curious why intermittent fasting has very little impact on my weight. I do 16 hours fast every day with calorie and carbohydrate restriction. It's not easy. I'm ravenous all the time. She says, I don't have energy and I feel depressed. Thank you, Paula.
3: The one piece of information that I really, well, there's two pieces of information I wish I knew. One, how long has she been doing this? That's so key. Because let's just forget about the part that I'm going to talk about in a minute, the calorie and carbohydrate restriction. Pretend like she didn't say that. And all she said was 16 hours is not working for her because she's not losing weight. It's not easy. She's hungry. If she's early in, then clearly she's not fat adapted because that's how you feel before you're fat adapted. And 16 hours may not be enough fasting for people to become fat adapted if they are you know, eating a lot during their eight-hour eating window. So you could do 16-hour fast every single day, never become fat adapted. And then your fast is going to be harder. Because the reason my fast is easy is because my body has flipped that metabolic switch. So in Fast, Feast, Repeat, I really go into details about this. Look for that chapter in Fast, Feast, Repeat. Now, Paula gives us a little bit of information there that she is also doing calorie and carbohydrate restriction. So I think Paula is going through what would happen with someone on a low calorie diet. She's not fasting long enough really with 16 hours to really get that you know, metabolic boost from really tapping into fat stores efficiently. But then she's not fueling up very well because she's doing calorie restriction during the, the feeding time. So what I would recommend, Paula, first of all, I would maybe have a few refeed days, just no fasting, just eat. You know, because you should not be feeling ravenous. You should not be depressed. You should not have low energy those are all things being ravenous all the time, having no energy, feeling depressed. That's how the guys felt when they were going through the Minnesota starvation experiment when they were not well-fueled. So those are all key signs of over-dieting. So stop. Give yourself a week, two weeks. Just don't count anything. Don't fast. Just eat. I don't know. You just want to get your body feeling like it's, it's feeling good again. Don't weigh yourself in that time. Then... You might want to try, you know, maybe read the 28-day fast start of Fast Feast Repeat and then ease yourself in. I would do the ease-in approach, take it gentle. You do not want to do calorie and carbohydrate restriction at the same time. You know, I I wouldn't recommend anybody do fasting and then also trying to do really low-calorie dieting at the same time. You know, it's Fast Feast Repeat, not Fast low-calorie diet, repeat. We want our bodies to feel well-fed. We want to be well-nourished. If you ever start feeling, you know, once you get past the adjustment phase and you know your body is fat-adapted, if you ever start feeling ravenous all the time, your energy is low and you're depressed, that's a sign that what you're doing is really, really wrong for your body. Also, carbohydrate restriction can lead to depression for some people. You know, carbohydrates, our brain, serotonin. I read a book. Did you ever read Potatoes, Not Prozac? Melanie, have you ever heard of that book? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. I might have mentioned it. I'm not sure. I can't remember the credentials of the person who wrote it. Maybe she was a psychiatrist. I can't remember. But she talked about, it's been a long time, she talked about having you know a hit of carbs like a potato at night before you go to bed, and that that really helped with mood. And so that that could be a factor right there as well. What do you think,
2: Melanie? You basically hit on all of it. I was zoning in on the fasting, the calorie, and the carb restriction. Like all of that at the same time is not not the game plan to take, especially when you're first starting intermittent fasting.
3: But we don't know. She might have been doing this a long time, in which case her body is really fighting back. True,
2: true, very true. Yeah, because it's so key. One of the things that makes intermittent fasting so magical is that when you have the feasting period, that's sending all of the signals to your body that make the fast in a way work even better because you need that feast period to send those signals to, you know, start the repair processes, start the growth and recovery and make the body not feel like it's in a state of perpetual starvation. So then it's more willing in a way to enter the fasted state when you do fast. Because it's not, what's the word when anthropomorphizing? I'm giving. Anthropomorphism. I'm doing that right now, even though it is your body. But <laughs> maybe somebody is following who's listening to me right now. So then your body enters the fast. If you don't have that feasting period, it's going to think that it's in a perpetual state of starvation. And so in the fast, metabolism is going to be massively downregulated. You're going to feel starving. You're going to feel ravenous. It's really, really important to have that feasting period. Period, and I keep. I mentioned it last time. I'm reading Joel Green's The Immunity Code, which is just blowing my mind, blowing my mind. But he talks a lot about this as well. I like Jen's idea about having some some refeed days, and then reevaluating like your whole plan about all this. Ironically, maybe fasting longer, but in the eating window, alternate daily fasting. Yeah, like a thirty-six twelve. I was going to suggest like rather than start jumping into that, because like I even get freaked out by that. And I've been fasting for a long time. And that's just me. Like I know some people like do really well with it. I was saying I feel like a first step would just be maybe fasting longer and not restricting calories in your window. What do you mean by fasting longer? That's what I'm confused by. So like maybe instead of a 16-hour fast. Oh, okay. Oh, I get it. Yeah. So like maybe doing like a one meal a day or, you know, feeling free to fast longer than 16 hours. So maybe fasting 18, 20 hours. But then when you eat no restriction. Like carb restriction, maybe if like those are the macros that your body does well on, but definitely not the calorie restriction.
3: And it really may not be. You know, there's a common thought in many intermittent fasting communities that if you're not also doing low carb with fasting, you're doing it wrong. But that's not true. Both Melanie and I have shown (laughs) with our own personal experience that we do great with plenty of carbs and the intermittent fasting. So, you know, if you definitely don't do well with carbs, that's one thing. But if you just are avoiding carbs because you think you should, that's a whole different thing.
2: Yeah, 100%.
3: I've got one of my moderator friends who was low carb for like, I mean, years and years and years and years and struggled, struggled, struggled. And before she was a moderator, she was just a person in the group. And I gave her the advice. I'm like, well, then try carbs, experiment with carbs. And she thought I was crazy. (laughs) She's like, you know, everybody knows low carb is quote better for weight loss. But she added carbs back and then went on to get to her ideal weight very easily.
2: 100%. Like definitely check out the interview. And I'm not completely like saying to do the diet they follow. But if you want more about the science of all of that, check out my interview that I did with Cyrus and Robbie who wrote Mastering Diabetes. It's kind of a mind-blowing episode. It's at MelanieAvalon.com slash Mastering Diabetes. Did I mention, I know I told you, Jen, but I don't know if I said on the podcast that I'm bringing on Dr. Doug Graham, who wrote the 80 10 diet. I told you that, right? I
3: can't remember. I'm really excited. What are his 80 Eighty ten ten 80-10-10 is like the macros that are
2: 80% carbs, 10% protein, 10% fat. Yeah. I could not do that diet. <laughs> I could not eat that way. No, no, no. And he's like fruitarian mostly.
3: <laughs> I need fat. I need fat. I need protein. Actually, our next question is about this a little bit. I need protein too, but less protein. I need adequate protein. You know, someone was asking about this today. I'm sure we'll get to that with the the protein question. But my body lets me know when I need more protein. Me too. Oh, no, I, I really need starchy carbs. Like, I need starchy carbs. Like, yesterday, I opened my window with this veggie bowl, this harvest bowl, it was called, from this company. I was trying their food. It was delicious. But... I was so unsatisfied. I mean, it was a giant bowl of food. It was like Brussels sprouts and I don't even know and all these great veggies. And then I was still starving. And then I had a bowl of oatmeal and then I felt better. <laughs> I've got to have starchy carbs. I do find starchy
2: carbs really satiating. I just don't like the way they feel in my body. I don't, I don't feel well.
3: <laughs> I feel fabulous after I eat starchy carbs. If I don't eat starchy carbs, I don't feel well. Like, that is 100% true. Like, that 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 veggie bowl, it was a whole giant bowl of food. I ate the whole thing. And then I was like, I am still hungry. (laughs) So I got to have beans or something with grains. I have to. A potato. Yeah, if I don't eat
2: a lot of protein, I don't feel full. But what I'm wondering, so Dr. Doug Graham is, like, pretty controversial. But the reason I'm so excited about bringing him on is because I feel like my show has been very like keto meat focused. Yeah. I mean, it's featured a lot of people in that world and I haven't had much on the flip side. I've had a few, but he's like pretty much like as far as you can go. That's pretty extreme.
3: 80, 10, 10 is very, very. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like so excited to bring him on. I would never stop eating if I was trying to do that because I don't get the stop eating signal.
2: There was a, a period of time where I was eating basically, you know, really, really high fruit, which I'm still trying to get back to, but like really, really high fruit, really high protein. I could have days on occasion where I did just fruit. I would do that occasionally, like for my one meal day. When I would do that, the next day, my body would feel so like, I don't know how to describe it, light and like airy. And like my eyes would be like, like all inflammation would be gone. My eyes would be like shining white. Like I just felt like radiating, but I would be craving protein like none other that night. But I'm really on the fence. I've Just all the other research I've run on the other side really, really
3: seems to be in support of high, moderate or higher protein diets. So, Well, the research on my body is <laughs> I need carbs, I need fat, and adequate protein. But my body tells me. like Sometimes I'm like, I don't want any meat. I don't want any meat. I'm just not going to have any today. And then other days I'm like, I really need to eat some meat today. I crave meat.
2: So much. I'm
3: actually pretty excited. I, I haven't told
2: you this yet, Jen, because I still have like a lot of lingering things I'm trying to tackle health wise. And I got introduced to a doctor who is apparently the doctor to like a lot of the people in my sphere. All I've had so far is like a brief consult intake with him, but I'm pretty excited because he's making me like reevaluate a lot of stuff. Like he already said, like like iron for example is like never an iron issue; it's like a copper issue. It's like what? <laughs> so he seems to. Be like, and he doesn't have like any one dogma about any one thing. So I'm pretty, pretty excited. We'll see how it goes. If it goes well, I will. I'm going to bring him on the show as well. We had an intake. He doesn't like the whole biohacking concept or like all of these different authors and books and ideas. So I'm going to bring him on for an anti-biohacking episode to like dismantle biohacking. I'm really
3: excited. To me, maybe I don't understand biohacking. Okay. So tell me if I'm wrong. To me, biohacking is tweaking anything about... What you do with your life or your body to maximize how you feel and your health,
2: right? Yeah. And this is what it comes down to because I actually had this conversation with two different people and it was the exact same conversation. And I had my idea and they had their idea of what it was. And they were very much anti biohacking because of the definitions. And it's so interesting how semantics are involved in. Oh, yeah. Semantics are huge. I mean, that was, I think that was the conclusion. Like, I literally got in an argument. I don't really get in arguments, but. <laughs> I got in sort of an argument about it. And at the end, we were just like semantics. Like (laughs) we can't really go beyond this. Because my definition of biohacking is like in our modern world, using tools, devices, supplements, things that we... Because some people say like fasting is biohacking or...
3: Exactly. Putting on your blue blockers.
2: I don't think like fasting is biohacking because that's just something we do.
3: No, I think it is. I consider it a biohack.
2: I consider the biohacks... Things that are using, like like I just said, like devices, supplements, things we would not naturally be able... Like living our normal life, we would not be able to do unless we like consciously you know, secured them and implemented them into our routine. And then by using them, they hack our environment, they hack our bodies to either potentially function better or perform better. So I consider biohacks things like blue light blocking glasses because the non-biohacking form of that would be you just turn off the lights and go to bed. (laughs) Or like juve red light, the non-biohack version would be go outside and see the red light. But even then, you can't get it in the concentrated
3: form. Okay. Intermittent fasting is a biohack by your definition. Let me explain. Because in the past, they weren't able to eat around the clock because food was not available around the clock. But now food is available around the clock. So we have to biohack by having time-restricted eating windows. But anybody can fast. Like...
2: And our bodies can fast, but you don't have to like go buy something to fast. Well, I don't think the biohack means you have to buy something. It's like a thing that you go get and implement into your life that would make your body potentially better. Because I wouldn't consider like following a low carb diet biohacking. But I think if you consider fasting biohacking, you could consider that biohacking. But the bristling comes in, I guess, with the two conversations I've had with people who get very upset by it. They think it is pretentious because it's assuming that well a few things. It was like it's assuming that we know better than our bodies and we think that we can, you know, bring these devices or bring these things in and make it make our bodies be better than they would just naturally be able to do from like life. Which I was saying, well, you could extend that same that same argument to medicine and say medicine is us trying to do that. That was like the main idea was that it was like pretentious or thinking that it's, we know better than our
3: bodies. Here's a definition I just found that I think this is a pretty good one. The attempt to manipulate your brain and body in order to optimize performance outside the realm of traditional medicine. See, that's why I think that intermittent fasting, which fasting is in traditional medicine. Like, Okay, I don't think that they're talking about ancient Chinese medicine or something. I think they're talking about like, you know, like go to the doc in the box kind of medicine, traditional, go to your practitioner who's just practicing medicine like they have for the past 20 years. That definition of traditional medicine is not, you know, like asking Aristotle or something. You know? Anyway, I definitely think fasting is biohacking. And and I think that you know carnivore is a biohack, and I think that eighty ten ten sounds like a biohack. All that does.
2: It's interesting though. I mean, a lot of people agree with you because, like, I'll do that poll a lot. I should do it now in my group, which everybody should join. I F Biohackers. Speaking of, that's what it's called. I F Biohackers. I will often ask, "What's your favorite biohack?" and A lot of people say fasting. I wouldn't consider cold. Okay. Like cold exposure. I wouldn't consider going out. That's a biohack. Yeah. So here's how I think about it. I wouldn't really consider like knowing, oh, if I go outside in the winter, it's going to be good for my body. It's going to activate sirtuins. It's going to have longevity boosting benefits. It's going to do all these things. I think just going out in the cold and experiencing that, I wouldn't consider that biohacking, but I would consider it biohacking. If I buy a chest freezer, fill it with ice, and do an ice bath, then I would consider it biohacking because it's like I like, am doing this. I'm creating this thing that is like upgrading my...
3: But you could do that absolutely just like outside and you don't need to buy something to do it. It's like a kid walking outside and... I think the key for biohacking is that it's purposeful for a goal of your body. Like a kid who's outside playing in the snow doesn't know that there are benefits associated with that. But if you're like, I'm going to go outside and get a lot of cold therapy because I'm hacking my body... That is what, by definition, makes it biohacking the purposeful pursuit of it for the purpose of changing your body. But people do that following a diet, and I don't consider diets biohacking like paleo. I don't consider if you were doing, you know, a a diet that you, you know, joined Weight Watchers or something, I wouldn't call that a biohack. But if you read about the science of calorie restriction and the scientists who are you know, they eat like two almonds and one cashew, you know, and they're, that calorie restriction is a biohack.
2: Why? Like why is one and not the other?
3: I, I really think the intent is the goal of it. Like they are doing the, you know, the I'm talking about calorie restriction, capital C, capital R. You know what I'm talking about, Melanie. We've talked about this before, the, the science of calorie restriction for longevity, because it's purposeful. You're like, I am going to hack my body to live to be 120 by having this calorie restriction versus somebody who's like, I'm joining Weight Watchers because I want to lose weight. That's totally different than the idea of doing calorie restriction for the longevity purpose. And it's very intense. It's like more intense. So here's a question. So like I have my Apollo
2: Neuro device, which I would hands down consider biohacking. It's one of my favorite. One of my favorite devices on the planet, listeners, if you want it. Feel like I've mentioned so many things this episode, but it's at Melanieablon.com slash Apollo. That's the interview. Melanieablon.com slash Apollo Neuro is to buy it and you get $50 off of that link. But so it uses sound wave therapy. So you put it on and it activates a state in your body that is activated by human touch to have like a relaxing effect on the body. I mean, I definitely consider that biohacking. What if you go get a massage and you get it with the intent of stimulating human touch so now is that is getting that massage biohacking
3: yeah i think massage can be in that case it would be
2: okay see i would not consider that biohacking
3: if you are attempting to manipulate your brain and body in order to optimize your performance if you're like oh i'm gonna get a massage i like that but if you're like i am going to get this special massage i'm gonna do this because of this 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 i think it can be a biohack you know, like I'm drinking a mug of hot water because I like it. But if I read something that said having a mug of hot water does this, this, this for your body, suddenly I'm using it as a biohack versus I'm just drinking hot water. I think it's the intent. I don't know. Maybe people think I'm crazy, but drinking hot water just because I'm cold, it makes me happy, is different than if if Wim Hof said, if you have a mug of hot water, it does this for your body. And now I'm purposefully adding that to my day for this biohack purpose.
2: Yeah, I'm open to that. Okay.
3: (laughs) That's what I've always thought of. So that's why intermittent fasting works for me. You know, like grandma who just naturally ate that way, I don't think she was biohacking. She just naturally ate that way. Whereas those of us who are like, I am doing intermittent fasting for health and longevity, I think it becomes a biohack.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the problems is just like, it goes back to semantics. Like there's not really one accepted definition and-
3: well, I mean, some people don't think that time-restricted eating is fasting. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of it is semantics and what we call we can get too caught up in that. But anyway, so your doctor doesn't like the word biohacking. Oh yeah, no. <laughs>
2: no. I, but it was crazy cuz I did the intake call, which was like 30 minutes, and we literally talked an hour and a half, and at the end I was like, we should have recorded this, like this <laughs> this could have been an episode. I'm really excited, though. So, Actually, I can say his name because he's been on shows, Dr. Anthony Beck. I was listening to him on Ben Greenfield recently.
3: Well, keep us posted. I shall. All right. So flowing into Carol Ann's question, determining adequate intake and IF slash HGH, which would be human growth hormone. After listening to Melanie's podcast with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and your podcast. I have not had a podcast with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, so I don't know who she's referring to. Just want to interject that. But go ahead. And your podcast of September 7th, an issue I've been pondering for quite a long time, has come to a head. It's not simple to present, but I'll start with the question, how much protein does one need if one is intermittent fasting? I bet it was Cynthia Thurlow. Ah, okay. Did she talk about protein? She did. Yeah. Okay. That's got to be it. Assuming a fasting window of at least 16 hours, how much daily slash weekly protein should we be eating? Another question goes along with this before I even get to the issue of the impact of intermittent fasting on adequate protein intake, and that is, how do we determine how much protein to get? If it is grams per pound of body weight, is it the whole body or lean body weight? Then what does lean body weight mean? Is it muscle tissue alone, or does it mean muscle and bone tissue, muscle, bone, organ tissue, or everything but fat tissue weight? Carol Ann, your question is making me crazy. I love you, but... (laughs) This is a question that Melanie would ask. (laughs) Melanie loves this question. And I'm like, eat your food. This is literally like me. (laughs) Eat your food. Stop eating your food. Boom. Okay. Sorry. All right, Carol Ann. I love you anyway. All right. Then to make it even harder, how do we know what those weights are? And of course, outside of professional health methods of measuring our body weight, that seems to leave only a scale that is able to measure all of that, which brings up another question. How accurate are those scales? Now to the issue of the impact of intermittent fasting on how much protein to consume. I often hear the great advice to eat to satiety each day, assuming a refeeding that does not limit calories in order to lose weight. And that statement seems to be an implicit belief that doing that will provide quite adequately for the body's needs. And that mainly seems to be, as far as I understand it, due to the stimulation of growth hormone due mainly to autophagy. I mean, I also think I'm just going to interject here real quick, Carol Ann. I wouldn't say it's the stimulation of human growth hormone due to autophagy, but the recycling of protein due to autophagy. Is that what you think she's asking, Melanie? The protein, you know, for your body's needs, that's because it's recycling it due to autophagy. She's saying stimulation of human growth hormone, that's the rebuilding phase. Autophagy is the breaking down phase. So when you're fasting, human growth hormone is going up. Right, right. But my point is, that's not because of autophagy making human growth hormone go up. I think she's talking about the the recycling of protein due to autophagy. Anyway, I'm going to keep going. That's where we where we have our protein needs met during the fast because our bodies are re- literally recycling it. The human growth hormone comes into play when you're rebuilding.
2: Yeah. So the human growth hormone is stimulated. It's going up while you're fasting. So then when you start eating, it's like, it's really high. And then you're at a prime state for growth.
3: And your body has recycled all those proteins during the fast. And now your body can use those too. So it's not just the protein you're eating is what I'm I'm trying to get across here. Yeah, you don't get all your protein just from protein that you take in through eating. So she continues, it is an uncomfortable place to be in. For me, it's really important that I make sure I get adequate nourishment so that my adrenals and thyroid can heal. When I began intermittent fasting in July of 2018, I already knew my adrenals weren't producing enough energy for me and doing fasting more than 14 to 15 hours was not the thing to do. I didn't know then that it was too stressful for my body. After listening to Dr. Lyon, it was definitely Cynthia Thurlow. And she's actually not a doctor. She's a nurse practitioner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I really got to wondering and having a lot of anxiety over how much protein should I be getting? You know, I'm going to stop right there again, and I have to interject this because a hundred years ago, nobody had anxiety about this. They just ate their food. It's so interesting how we're like, like the more we know, the more we're learning, the more anxious we become. You know, if you went back in time and said to somebody... They would they would look at you like you were crazy. That we're worried about anyway. I'm just going on. It's it's just it, we we have knowledge overload. All right. So I live a quiet lifestyle, low demand, because that's what I need to do right now to lessen the stress in my life. I know these aren't simple questions, but I greatly respect the thoroughness of your research and your approach to difficult issues. And just to add here, because it's already way too long, and what will one more sentence be? Thank you immensely for keeping your podcast free of politics. It's like an oasis of peace and calm and encouragement, and I treasure it and you guys. With highest and warmest regards, Carol. Yep, Carol, you will never hear us talk about politics. <laughs> never. Nope. Nope. No, we've never even talked about politics. Melanie and I have never talked about politics. We we could be the complete opposite. We'll never know, and we're not going to tell you. We wouldn't even know. <laughs> That's so funny not going to tell you because that's personal. All right. And it's irrelevant.
2: Well, thank you, Carol Ann for your question. (laughs) Love it. Really appreciate it. And it flows perfectly with everything that we were talking about before. So, oh, and I'm, yeah, it was definitely Cynthia Thurlow. And the reason I, I totally forgot, it's always interesting to see what resonates when I release an episode, like what part of the episode people really resonate with. Because for every episode, if you do join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, there's an episode giveaway each time. And to enter, all you do is comment on the post about the episode, something that you learned or what resonated with you. And when I released that episode with Cynthia, which was a few weeks ago, or maybe last week, Everybody was like, protein. Like, and I, I totally forgot that we talked about that because it was, you know, just a tiny bit of the whole conversation. But that's what really stuck out to people was because she was saying for women, one of the reasons she advocates longer eating windows is she thinks for most women, it's almost near impossible to get enough protein. And then my answer was, I'm definitely the exception because it's shocking how much protein I eat in a one meal a day situation. But yeah, she was saying that for women specifically how important it was to get enough protein as far as how much protein is enough so this is ironic I don't know so we were t- I was talking before about you know one side of the camp of things people like Dr. Graham you know fruitarians the low protein camps saying that all
3: we need is like 10%
2: of protein
3: yeah there's actually a book called Proteinaholic that talks about that we're eating too much protein I've also had James Clement on the show and we talked
2: about protein as well I'm really, really fascinated by it because it is such a polarizing thing. Like on the one hand, we have people saying, oh, we're fine with 10% and that's actually ideal. Then on the other hand, we have people saying the complete opposite. Probably the episode I went deepest into protein would be the one I did with William Schufelt and Ted Naiman. I think that's literally at melanieavalon.com slash protein. So people like him, people like Rob Wolf, We, my recent episode with him, we talked about protein. They point out how... Direly important protein is, like a moderate, if not high protein intake for health, for our bodies, for satiety, for longevity.
3: Can I pop in a theory that I have? Yeah. You know how I, we talk all the time about how we're all different when it comes to what foods work for us? I wonder if some of us are better at recycling protein, so we need to take in less and so we naturally gravitate towards eating less. And then we assume everyone should eat less because that's how we feel great. Whereas the people like maybe, you know, the people who feel best when they eat 90% protein, maybe their bodies aren't good at recycling protein and they need to take in more.
2: That's what I was going to ponder. So that, and then I also wonder though, how much of it is like, you know, you and your genetics, your epigenetics. What I keep thinking about is reading this eighty ten ten book and dancing around the communities and seeing what people say. It's like, A lot of people say that your body adapts, you know, so like it starts working just fine on the lower protein intake. So I I don't know how much of it is like genetic versus epigenetic from the diet that you're following for a certain period of time. All that said, I think there could be a case to be made for lower protein for longevity, especially while you're young. I'm not so much sure after you hit a certain age, there's a, I think it's around 60 or so. I don't know the exact number. There's a point where. Low protein, the relationship changes.
3: Yeah, I've read that too. I think Dr. Fung talks about that.
2: Yeah, it's and it's pretty well established. Like once you reach a certain age, like you need you need more protein.
3: I really believe our bodies are going to tell us. Like I know how I feel if I one day I'm craving more protein and I I look back and I think, yeah, I didn't really have much protein the past few days. And then I'm like, now I'm going to have this big piece of chicken. You know,
2: the thing I wonder is, I've been so high protein for so long. I'm like, what if my body is just that's what
3: it's accustomed to. But to answer her specific questions, so the grams... Oh, don't ask me. I don't know any of those recommendations because I would never be able to follow them. So the official dietary recommendations are
2: 0.36 grams per pound. And who's that recommendation coming from? The dietary reference intake. Yeah, 0.8 grams per kilogram. What I see most in the communities that I is communitize
3: in a word? No, <laughs> that I live in. You commune in them. You commune in those communities. I don't know. I just made that up. I don't know if that's right, but you commune with them.
2: <laughs> I like going by what Seamland talks about, just if I have to like, pick one person. Well, and Ann William and Ted Naiman, Ted Naiman's book. I don't have that book with me right now. So I'm just looking at Seamland's book and he advocates... 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.8 grams per pound of lean body mass on rest days and 0. 0.8 to 1.2 grams on workout days, which that is often what I like see. So, cause that averages to around one gram per pound of lean body mass. So I'm just going to throw that out there as like something to consider. And so what that would look like would be Because you ask, how do you know what your lean body mass is? You can get it measured. A lot of gyms have machines that will measure your, they'll show you like your composition of everything. And you don't have to worry about tissue, muscle, bone, organ tissue. (laughs) It's going to show you like fat muscle, like, and that's what you need to know. There are the scales. I don't know how accurate they are. I read things all over the board about them. Do you have thoughts about the accuracy of those scales?
3: Yeah, I've heard a lot of negatives about them because, you know, they they work with bioimpedance and a lot of it has to do with your body water and they all claim they're great, but they're really, I think, not all that great. I don't know. I mean, what I would advocate just to be
2: safe is you could just go for around... And I know this seems like a lot, but even though I talked about the low protein before, I think if you're not purposely trying like a low protein diet for that reason, I would err on the side of more protein. And I mean, I don't really measure or count or anything. I just do what Jen was saying. Like I eat to satiety, but you could aim for like a gram per, I would say even like per normal body weight, like in that ballpark. Especially if you're trying to like lose weight, maintain weight, have satiety, things like that, which I don't know that she necessarily was asking about that, but if that is the case, protein has the highest thermogenic effect of any food, although I don't know if it's alcohol might have more, but um of like food, meaning you burn calories, just processing it. It's very satiating, like I said, and it does support your muscle. There's even been studies, and I think we've talked about them before. They have found studies where they didn't change exercise protocols and they, I'm not saying that you can just eat like tons of protein and gain muscle, but they have found that, that overeating protein can lead to more muscle growth, even without necessarily doing a workout to create that, which is pretty shocking. So she said she has a lot of anxiety over wondering about the protein. I think it all goes back to what Jen said at the beginning, like, try not to have the anxiety part of it. The fact that you're trying to get enough protein, I think, is like a good thing. Like I think the problem, a lot of people get overly focused on fat or carbs and they're not even thinking about the protein. So I feel like you're one step ahead with all of that. And it sounds like you are pretty intuitive with your eating window. Like you said that you found originally that fasting for more than 14 to 15 hours, like wasn't working for you. And you, you did realize it was too stressful for your body. So it sounds like you're really in tune with your body. I would encourage you to eat protein to satiety out of curiosity, maybe you could like eat to satiety for a while and like, and then retroactively look at how much you ate and see if it does sort of line up to that one gram per pound. I'm saying normal weight because the recommendation is technically like less, but yeah.
3: Jen, do you have other thoughts? Well, I I kind of already said mine during the, um, (laughs) while I was reading it. I just never want to stress about macros or what I'm eating. And even, you know, I talked about this on the podcast when I was doing the Predict 3 and I had to enter exactly what I was eating into the app. I wasn't even trying to eat to targets. I just had to put it in. That was too much for me. You know, I was like, I don't know. What am I eating? I, I don't know how to put this in. So I don't want to count, track, manage, measure, worry, do a math problem. I don't want to do that. I, in fact, refuse to do that ever again I'm just going to eat food that is delicious. Even when I was experimenting, you know, Melanie and I have talked about this. I was experimenting with eating less fat just to see how it felt after, you know, reading Mastering Diabetes and seeing that their recommendations matched what that one DNA analysis told me. I was like, well, I'm just going to try it and see. Even then, I I couldn't count. I just had to eyeball it. So I just never want to count anything again. I just want to eat food until I'm satisfied. I genuinely believe that our bodies are not going to let us be deficient in protein without sending us craving for more protein. I think that's one of those things we have that that signal cuz just you know listening to my body and knowing how it varies from day to day. I get that signal very very easily. Like I'll be like, "Ooh, I'm going to add an egg on top of this." You know, I just I, I just feel like I'm craving it. Now actually that sounds really good and I'm thinking about having an egg. <laughs> When I open my window, I love to have, you know, some days eggs on toast to open my window. You would not have eggs or toast, would you? Oh, oh, oh no. I would have egg whites and
2: I might have egg yolk. I don't like having like them together. I might use the egg yolk as like a part of my a supplement for like a multivitamin type thing with my food. Or I might have like a lot of
3: egg whites. All right. Well, I like a runny egg on top of toast. First, I put butter on the toast. Then I put it in the toast oven and toast it. And then I fry up the little eggs till they're runny on the top. I'm really good at making fried eggs runny on the top, low and slow. That's the key. And then I get it all in there and let the egg run all over the toast so it's drippy. Now I'm starving. I think I'm going to have that. What time is it? <laughs> but like I said, my body lets me know. So I beg of you not to get all stressed out about that because... That's not how we're meant to live.
2: On the flip side, I do want to say, though, because I, I love everything you just said, and on top of that, that's a reframe I'm starting to do in my life, Jen. What's that? So, like, say somebody says something, and you, like, acknowledge at their point, and you're like, that's valid. Right? Not making the conjunction that follows, but. Because if you say, but, then it's like saying, oh, that's valid, but. So, you have to say, and. And, okay. So, everything that you said, <laughs> and. But. <laughs>
3: So now I'm going to know that's what you mean, though. No, no. It's okay to disagree. That's okay.
2: No, I, no, no. That's the thing, though. No, but that, the reason I said this just now is I, I agree. I do agree with, with what you said. Okay. And on top of that, <laughs> I think there's some people who they do like tracking and measuring, and I just want to say that if they do like it, I think that's okay, too.
3: Oh, definitely. If you love it and want to, but yes. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that you can't if you love it, but... Carol Ann sounds a little stressed out about it, like almost like it's making it worse. Like I'm gonna weigh myself, but what weight do I use and what scale should I be on and how do I calculate my muscle mass? And I I really think that that it doesn't sound like something that's enjoyable. It sounds like something that's stressing you out. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you're right though. If someone loves to do that and they're biohacking through math of (laughs) you would say that's not biohacking, but you know, if that's what you want to do and it feels good and you love doing it then then do that but i don't i'm like never gonna do it again never again <laughs> i whispered that to the microphone both are okay
2: yeah they are in our non-politic world of ands yeah all-inclusive yeah any definitions of biohacking welcome <laughs>
3: <laughs> exactly do it or not <laughs> What's what's a biohack for me might not be one for you. You know, I'm not getting in a chest freezer, but (laughs) I might go outside without my coat to check the mail and think, look, I'm biohacking. I'm biohacking. I got cold on purpose, right? (laughs) I feel like a cold shower might be on the fence for biohacking. Oh, no, that's a biohack. I'm sorry,
2: but I don't agree with that. (laughs) I feel like actually I would consider
3: biohack because it's like, It's like using technology to... Exactly. See, that's a biohack. Speaking of which, my upstairs bathroom, we can end on this note. We have plumbing in the upstairs bathroom. Oh, congratulations. The only thing we don't have now is like you could actually go up there and take a shower, brush your teeth and use the bathroom. But what you can't do is have lighting. Unfortunately, (laughs) we're waiting on the electrician. So... In the meantime, we thought it would be a great idea to also have them redo all the faucets and fixtures in our master bath. So they came on Thursday, and I'm like, this is great. They're going to be done because they tore our bathroom apart. This is our master bath. They tore it apart a couple months ago because it was dripping, and then they had to cut out the part of the wall. I mean, it's, it's dramatic. So I haven't been able to use my master bathroom shower since, I don't know, July. Here it is September. I've been walking across the house to the other bathroom. So they came on Thursday and I was so excited. But oh my Lord, the amount of plumbing they've needed to do to just to switch out the faucets on our tub and our shower and our two sinks. It's very elaborate. Plumbing is not easy. They're still not done. Two guys were here all day on Thursday. One guy was here half the day on Friday and everything's still torn apart.
2: I feel like plumbers are people that like, there are a few professions in this world that you're just like so grateful for them. I'm just really grateful for plumbers.
3: I'm grateful for all the professions that do things I don't know how to do. Plumbers are one of them, but watching them do it it's it's a lot of work. It's hard. But also, I don't know what's up with the plumbing industry, but if anyone's in the industry, y'all are ridiculous. Because here's what I'm talking about. Did you know the fixtures are not interchangeable? Like you just want to change things out. You can't. No, I can't just get a different brand shower handle. They have to cut the whole fitting out of the wall to replace it. Moral of the story is don't buy fancy plumbing fixtures. Do not get fancy high-end crazy faucets. Because then when you need to get a new one because something's wrong with it, they're going to have to cut holes in your wall and replace the inside parts. Everything should just be universal. It's 2020. Hello. Well, on that note, <laughs> don't you think it should be universal? I think they should be
2: switch all universal. Yes.
3: Yeah. At this point, it should not be that hard that they should not have to cut the hole out of the wall in order to put in a new shower thing. Anyway, huh. anyway, one day I will We will have all the working bathrooms, and I'm going to use them all, and it will be a nice warm shower in all of them, no cold showers. If I'm ever a guest at your house, I'll take a cold shower. You can take as cold of a shower as you want to. I love my cold showers. That is okay. I don't have a freezer for you, but we could fill my bathtub up with cold water. I got new faucets, and they're beautiful. They just aren't attached yet. You can't actually put water in my tub because it's not attached. The faucets are lovely. They just don't work. Yet. Do you like baths? I love baths. I'm a bath taker. <laughs> I don't like baths. <laughs> uh, I heard Oprah one time say, this is in the 90s when her show was on every day, you know, when she had the afternoon show on NBC or whatever it was. I watched it every day. And one time someone asked her what her hobby was, and she said bathing. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. Like getting in the tub with a book, staying there for three hours. That's me. Maybe if
2: it's an ice bath, yeah.
3: Oh, no. Hot. It's got to be hot.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, this has been wonderful. For listeners, I... I feel like we talked about so many things. The show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 184. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, directly email questions at ifpodcast.com, or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can get all the things that we like at ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. You can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. You can follow me. I'm Melanie Avalon, Janice Jen Stevens, and I think that is it.
3: Anything else from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. I think I said a lot of things, but I'm waiting for the plumbing industry. to Give me a call. We can have a chat. Let me know if that transpires. Really, though, my advice for people really is keep it simple and, and pick a brand. Like the plumbers in Augusta, for whatever reason, they love, they love Delta. Pick a brand and stick to it.
2: You're like, really, my advice is for listeners to... And I was like, is it going to be a fasting thing or is it going to
3: be about the plumbers? It's plumbing. It's plumbing because right now I'm living it. (laughs) Don't buy fancy plumbing
2: fixtures. And don't let mold be in your apartment. Either one. They're both bad. This is true. If
3: you buy fancy plumbing fixtures and they leak, you're going to have mold and then you can't switch them out because it's too hard. That's a problem. Now I'm invested. Now Melanie is invested. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, because see, that was what was happening. Ours were dripping and you couldn't buy replacement parts because first of all, you couldn't tell what brand they were because they're so fancy. The people that had our house before us, they were fancy people and they bought fancy things. And so we were like, we're buying Delta and they're going to work. And if they don't, we'll just get a new one. And the plumbers are like, thumbs up on that. So Yeah, I'm invested now.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful and I will talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. Thank you so much
0: for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. The music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.